Uh, we are continuing in our series in Genesis, but uh, the series in Genesis we're calling Foundations, and along the way we stop and look at various uh, topics that are kind of foundational topics for life or for the Bible. And so today we're stopping and looking at a topic that begins in Genesis, but is important for the whole Bible, the topic of covenants. Covenants. So I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to be reading verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, and I'll be reading verses 31 to 34. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? By the Holy Spirit, Jeremiah prophesied, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You can be seated as we pray. Father, together we pause to look to you at the outset of this sermon. We're uniting our prayers to ask that your spirit would work powerfully through this sermon, that you would, um, that you would teach us, that you would work in our hearts, and that you would say what we need to hear. You know that better than we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Can you just slide this forward a little bit? Get a little closer to you. One of the most universal, one of the most universally profound and moving moments in all of life is the wedding vow. A young man with the, the bulk of his life still in front of him looks into his bride's eyes and says these mind-blowing words, I, Joe, take you, Jill, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish according to God's holy plan till death do us part. This is my solemn vow. I mean, what business does that young kid have saying such a magnificent promise? He has no idea the significance of what he's saying in those words. And yet he means it. All of it in earnestness. 
And it's in the power and safety of that exchange of vows that the whole marital relationship breathes and thrives. This man and this woman will be bound in love solely to one another until death parts them. Yes, it will be tested and tried, strained and stretched, pushed and prodded. But all of that, weathered under the umbrella of the vow, only thickens the love. And we know that. So we celebrate that moment across time and cultures. It's one of the most profound human experiences. And it was created by God. This covenant marital relationship was created by God. And of it, he says in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You catch that from Ephesians 5.32? The beauty and power of covenant relationship was designed by God to point to the relationship between himself and his followers, Jesus and the church. Covenant love is profound. And like that groom at the beginning of the sermon, God has looked us in the eye and pledged himself to us. He is not some detached God in the sky who's heartlessly managing the mundane affairs of mankind. No. He has bound Himself to us in covenant love. So because God's covenant love is so important, we're pausing today to spend a whole sermon Understanding God's covenants. Kind of like how in premarital counseling, I spent a good chunk of time helping the couple understand the vows they'll be making and the implications of them. So if we're thinking about covenants, perhaps a good place to start is with a definition of a covenant. A covenant tends to have three components. It's a binding agreement between two parties who are in relationship with one another. A binding agreement between two parties who are in relationship with another. So it's, it's more than a contract because of the relationship involved. It's a, there's a more personal nature to it. And it's more than a promise because there's a mutuality to it. Now, specific to God's covenants in the Scriptures, a covenant, and here's the definition, is God binding himself to his people in a relationship of loyal love. God binding himself to his people in a relationship of loyal love. It's like a wedding vow. Or more accurately, it's what God designed a wedding vow to point to. If you're a Christian, A covenant is how God has bound himself to you. If you're not a Christian, 
A covenant is what God this morning offers to you. Now, theologians quibble a bit over the exact number of covenants of God or covenants that God makes in the Bible, but all agree on these five. The covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and the new covenant. But these five covenants are not detached, unrelated units. They, they function together, leading us on a journey. Now the destination is the new covenant. It's the new heavens, the new earth, where God's people live with God himself in paradise forever. Or as Revelation elsewhere describes it, a wedding feast. The culmination of God's covenant love. That's the destination. But we won't understand or enjoy the, the first four covenants unless we understand how they relate to the destination. So I want to explain it with a bit of an analogy. Suppose you're on a journey somewhere, but you're plucked down and you don't really know exactly where you're going or how to get there. And suddenly there is this path that emerges that's marked out for you. Here's the way to go to get where you're headed. And you start along that path, and, and, and that path is showing you where you're going. Now, all along the way, as you walk in that path, you still don't have a clear picture of the destination you're headed for. So as you're on your journey, walking along this path that's been marked out, there's also this, this kind of scale model that you get to walk through for a little bit. It's not, the, it's not the exact destination you're headed to, but it's like a scale model of that that you can actually walk in and see and experience a bit so that while you're on your way to the main destination, you get, a, you get a sense of where you're headed and what it's going to look like. So there's a path that's taking you there, and along the way there are these models that, that show you this, this is where you're headed. It's going to look like this. Covenants are like that. They show us the path to the new covenant in Jesus, and they also, along the way, show us a model of the new covenant in Jesus. So as a path, it's something that you start along and start on. And once you start on, it's going to remain unchanged until you finally get to your destination of Jesus. The model is something that's, that's there for a set period of time. And yet, even though it's just there for a set period of time, it is, it is helping you understand where you're going. So that's how covenants function, and I, and I want to take a few minutes with you to understand each of the covenants to see how they are path and model of that new covenant. Now the first, the first covenant we'll look at is the covenant with Noah, or it's called the Noahic covenant, Noah with an I-C at the end. We find it in Genesis 9. Remember, mankind was in rebellion against God. And as we saw a few weeks ago, it wasn't pretty. Quite frankly, it was a mess. Sin and evil abounded. It was so awful. God was grieved that he had made mankind. And so he shows the world what they deserve. He sends a flood of judgment. And every living thing on the earth is destroyed except for Noah and those who are with him in the ark. Now when the flood waters finally subside, God makes 
a covenant. It's a covenant with all humanity that despite our wickedness and rebellion, He will preserve us while He works His redemptive plan. And as a symbol of that covenant, God places the rainbow in the sky. Whenever you see a rainbow, stop and remember that God has willingly bound himself not to destroy the world with a flood despite our rebellion. He is gracious. He is kind. He loves us. He is merciful to us, to all of us. Now, the Noahic covenant is a path covenant. It begins us on the path to the new covenant by showing us we deserve judgment and so depend upon God's mercy. And it's only because of the Noahic covenant that we're able to make it to the new covenant. Without it, we would be wiped away before Jesus ever comes. It preserves the whole world so that God can commence his redemption plan. And that's where the second covenant, the covenant with Abraham, comes in. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. We find it throughout Genesis, but it begins in Genesis 12 and 15. So look with me at Genesis 12. I'm going to read the first three verses of Genesis 12. Now in Genesis 12, it's a promise, and it's in Genesis 15 that it formally becomes a covenant. But we're going to look at the promise that makes up the covenant here in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation, And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this Abrahamic covenant is particularly important because of what it tells us about the path of God's redemption. Those who have been following along in our series in Genesis remember that as, as soon as Adam rebelled against God, he unleashed sin and death upon the world. And then right after that, God promises a solution. Blessing and deliverance from the serpent would come through an offspring of Eve, through a seed of the woman. That's in Genesis 3.15. So here, in this covenant with Abraham, we see that We see how that blessing will come. Verse 3 tells us that all the families of the earth will be restored to blessing through Abraham and his offspring, the nation that comes from him. The offspring promise of Genesis 3.15 is now made into a covenant, a covenant with Abraham. And so... All of a sudden, all the families of the earth care immensely about what happens with Abraham and his offspring. Abraham and the nation that comes from him. 
Because Abraham and his offspring, his nation, becomes the vehicle by which all of us will be restored to God's blessing. So from this point in Genesis 12 on, the Old Testament is very preoccupied with this small nation that God has made a covenant with. But it's not that we're preoccupied as some niche ethnic history lesson. We're preoccupied with it because it's the very means by which we, Gentiles, the other families of the earth, would be restored to blessing. So that's how we see this path emerging. God's going to use the line of Abraham to bring about the redemption he's promised. But even though I'd say probably the main thrust of what the Abrahamic covenant does for us is is give us a path. It also is a model for us because verses one and two tell us God is going to raise up a nation from Abraham. It tells us that nation is going to have a land, so people and place, and that people in that place will know God's blessing. So people, place, blessing. That's uniquely promised here to Israel, but it is a model of something bigger. So in the new covenant, it climaxes in in an eternal land that's marked by God's bounty and provision. And those who enjoy that place or that land will be God's new nation, his new people, Jew and Gentile together, all enjoying the eternal blessing of God. So you see the model there in the Abrahamic covenant. Now because God has bound himself to Israel in that way, we see him preserving them and rescuing them. His covenant with Abraham compels him to rescue Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And so in Exodus, you read about the Passover lamb, the passing through of the Red Sea. God extricates his people out of their slavery in the land of Egypt. And once God has fully delivered them from their enemy, God establishes them as their own sovereign nation. They're uniquely his people, his treasured possession, his kingdom. And the way that nation will operate is based on the third major covenant in the Bible, the covenant with Moses, or the Mosaic covenant, as it's called. Now, this covenant is an immense covenant. It encompasses the temple, the priests, the Ten Commandments, All those commandments we find in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's it's a big covenant. But I want to take a moment just to read when it's inaugurated, when it actually is, is the vows are made. So look with me at Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. How are you supposed to get pages apart when you can't lick your fingers? Um, I'm just going to read verses 6 through 8. Mo- uh, Exodus 24, 6 through 8. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant 
and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now I want you to read that in part because we'll see that blood is a key theme of this covenant. It runs throughout it in all sorts of ways. But what this covenant is doing is building an elaborate scale model for Israel and us who read the Old Testament to walk through while we're on the journey to the new covenant. A scale model of what's to come in its fullness in the new covenant. But even though it is primarily a model, it's not without its path components. So as a path, it shows us again how God is the one who must rescue his people from our enemies, from our own sin. We depend upon God's grace through and through. And that's a theme that will continue right unchanged all the way up through Jesus. As a path, it also gives us a taste of the distinct way God calls his people to live. We are to be holy to the Lord because he is holy. We're to be a city on a hill. And as a path, it also shows us the failure of works-based righteousness. By setting up a system of laws to follow that we have to follow if we want to experience God's blessings, and if we don't, we'll know God's curses, God actually designed a system to show us that we simply couldn't be good enough to make ourselves right with God and to enjoy his blessings. When we are left with do right and be blessed, do wrong and be cursed, we end up cursed every time. And the Mosaic system was was designed to expose that. But the pay dirt of the Mosaic Covenant is in what it models for us. Through the tabernacle or the temple, we see that God desires to dwell with his people. But through the curtain in that tabernacle, we see that sinful man remains cut off from a holy God. And then we learn that the way to overcome this division is through the mediation of a priest and through atoning sacrifices. Through those sacrifices, we learn that our sin requires blood. Something or someone must die in our stead in order to satisfy God's just wrath against our sin. So in that way, I'd say the Mosaic Covenant is more model than path, even though it is both. Which leads us to the fourth covenant, the covenant with David, and by now you probably can guess what it's called. You add the IC at the end, Davidic Covenant. We see that one in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so I'll have you turn there as well. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 12 and 13. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. 
Yahweh says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Later on it says, your throne shall be established forever. Now in some ways when you read what God's saying here to David, you see it's talking about Solomon. Because later on it'll talk about iniquity he commits. And that is the seed that's established who builds the temple. And yet Solomon falls short of the lofty heights of this covenant. Because he doesn't reign forever. He dies. You could even say, you know, well, he doesn't reign forever because even his offspring doesn't remain on the throne of Israel forever. Eventually, Israel doesn't have a Davidic king over them. So what's going on? The prophets help us make sense of this covenant. Just consider what Jeremiah 33 says. Listen as I read verses 14 to 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he will execute justice and righteousness in, that la- in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. You see, this Davidic covenant was going to be fulfilled in someone who would come and be an eternal king, a king who would be known, cause his people to be known by Yahweh is our righteousness. This covenant, this Davidic covenant is all about path. God is telling his people that he is binding himself to deliver and rescue them through a son of David who will come and reign forever. One who would make a path for Yahweh to be our righteousness. This is God swearing on himself that he'll raise up an heir to rule and rescue. So those are the four covenants. On one level, why do we care about these old covenants? They're all just leading us to the new covenant. Why spend time with them? Or maybe I could ask the question differently. Why read the story of the Velveteen Rabbit? I mean, can't I just tell you the stuffed bunny becomes a real bunny? Why do I need to learn that it was once a shiny new toy just sitting on a shelf? Why do I need to learn about how it was eventually cuddled and and, and treasured? Why do I need to learn about this bunny's heartache when he's mocked by real rabbits that he's fake? Why do I need to read about how his whiskers fall off and his spots are faded? Why do I need to know about how his boy nearly dies from the scarlet fever and the rabbit stays there by his side through it all faithfully? 
Why do I need to learn that as a result of that, he becomes so germ-infested that he's left in a pile to be burned? I mean, just tell us that the stuffed rabbit became real, right? Of course not. Because the whole story is designed to draw us in so that we can see why the end really matters. It helps us to know the rabbit. It helps us to see why he matters. And through the whole story, we understand the significance of the rabbit becoming real. But that's just a pretend story meant to teach us about the nature of love. How much more do we need to know the true story of God's covenant love for his people? Because the whole story allows us to know God in all his richness and fullness. It helps us grasp the deep love God has for us, the nature of his character, and it helps us grasp our own desperate state. Christians untethered from the whole story of God's covenants don't make sense. Why wouldn't we want to know our own love story? Christians untethered from the whole story of God's covenants are unmoored. They're prone to error in their grasp of who God is, what he expects of us, or the weight of it all. We need to know the God of the covenant. So we need to know the covenants. I mean, just think of what we've learned as we follow the path of the covenants. That we deserve to be destroyed in our sin, but God graciously agrees not to destroy us while he works out his redemptive plan. And that plan is going to come through the nation of Israel. That little people will become a pathway for blessings to all the families of the earth. Through them the curse will be overcome, but it must be God who rescues If we try to be good enough for God, we'll be left under God's curses. We need him to become our righteousness. More specifically, we need a king who will come and deliver us to defeat our enemies and to overcome our sin. And God, through these covenants, has bound himself in loyal love to do all of this. He's bound himself to bring blessing to all families of the earth, to send a king to rescue, to be our righteousness. What a savior. And then consider what we we learn from the model of the covenants. God intends to make a a people, a holy nation for himself, a people zealous for good works. And he intends to establish them in his own lush land so they can enjoy his blessings. But in order for that to happen, we need a temple. We need a way for that holy God to dwell with a sinful people. And key to that will be a priest who can mediate and a sacrifice that will atone for our sin. And God modeled all these aspects of his character by binding himself in covenant with Israel as a precursor of the greater covenant he would institute through Jesus. 
And so I need to say little about the fifth covenant, the new covenant, because really we've been talking about it all along. An offspring of Abraham, an offspring of David, would come and be the once and for all sacrifice for sins. He would give his life in our stead so that our sins could be forgiven, his righteousness becoming ours. In so doing, he would be the temple of God, the way the holy God could dwell with a sinful people. And he would become the ultimate priest, a forever priest, who not only intercedes for us, but who makes a way for all of us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. And one day this king will return and establish a perfect and just kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, a better than the promised land kind of Eden. And there, that king's new humanity will join him and enjoy the blessings of God for all eternity. It's what we celebrate today with the Lord's table. Because remember, it was at the Passover meal, a covenant meal, a commemorative meal of the Old Testament that Jesus took bread and a cup. He lifted up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We don't have to be sprinkled with the blood of heifers. We're washed with the blood of Jesus. This meal is our way to remember the great God we serve and the covenant he has made with us. A God who doesn't just say, here are my laws, follow them, but a God who through this new covenant allows us to have new hearts that actually desire his ways. We're born again so that as we read in Jeremiah 31, his law is written on our hearts. You see, the covenants aren't just an area of theological study. They are how God binds himself to his people in a relationship of loyal love. Loyal love. The God of the universe binding himself to you, to me, in loyal love. Not because he's forced to, but because this is how the God of the Bible chooses to interact with his people. The famous 23rd Psalm has a verse in it that's usually translated or used to be translated, surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. That word loving kindness really is referring to God's covenant love. So it might be better translated like this. Surely God's goodness and covenant-keeping love will pursue me every day of my life. That's our God. Oh, that we would understand the depth and the loyalty of his love for us in Christ. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you 
for this word. We thank you for your promises, for your covenant, that you love us. You've sworn to pursue us in this kind of deep, loyal love. Help us, even as we take communion, to grasp to grasp it with greater depth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.